Hello and thanks very much for joining us on Search for Truth. It's great to have your company. We talk number eight in our series today, continuing our studies from the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Our Bible teacher, Brian Johnston, takes up Paul's thoughts around the Christians of Corinth, touching on issues and advice concerning uh, our sensitivity toward the needs of others uh, from the perspective of their conscience and spiritual maturity. And Brian's called today's subject, Clear Conscience and Kind Consideration. So, here's Brian to tell us more. Thanks very much. Do you think someone else's past experiences should cause you to modify your behaviour whenever you're spending time with them? Well, you might be thinking, what do I mean by that? Let me try to give you an example. You may be a Christian who believes that you're entitled to drink alcohol in moderation, say a, a glass of wine with a meal. One day, you're having a meal with a recovering alcoholic. Out of respect for him or her, and in consideration of the circumstances, you order a soft drink instead. One glass of wine means nothing to you, but it means a lot to him or her. So you refuse to put their path to recovery at risk by advertising your own personal freedom. You save it for another occasion, when there's no chance of causing anyone to stumble. Wine at the meal table would have been commonplace in the Middle Eastern setting of the biblical narrative. It was another issue which required similar careful handling by the earliest Christians. As the message of Christianity spread outwards from within its Jewish origins, soon people began to turn to Christianity from a pagan past. A pagan past which had routinely featured the eating of food that had previously been sacrificed to idols, and in its preparation had undergone various rituals in honour of the pagan gods. It appears such food processing methods, if we may call them that, provided a ready source of cheap food. If you were someone in those days who had an eye for a bargain and scoffed at the whole idea of the mumbo-jumbo of idols and so-called gods, then you'd probably found a cost-effective source of ready meals. Nothing wrong with that until one day a Christian friend joins you for a meal. Before his conversion, he's been raised in a family setting which reverenced the dark and idolatrous forces of the pagan spirit world. As a result, eating food sacrificed in honour of pagan deities had once been so meaningful for him. Now, since his exposure to Christianity, he'd made a decisive break with his past, turning from all of its pagan rituals, these were now things he passionately denounced. So we're back to our opening question. Do you let someone else's past experience shape your present action? Your usual cheap food is no big deal to you, but you rightly sense that it will be a big deal for him because of all the past associations. These memories still colour his view of the food now, so you discreetly put it back in the kitchen and grab a safe takeaway which you can both enjoy. This was a real issue, and doubtless what we've just imagined was a fairly typical scenario. The Apostle Paul had to grapple with this topic when writing to his Christian friends in the Church of God at Corinth. From the top of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, 
we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. It's interesting that Paul chose to preface his remarks about idols with a comment about knowledge. In a sense, the worldly saying that knowledge is power is true. And the power that knowledge gives can be used abusively if it disrespects the fear which ignorance can bring with it. But here's a strange thing. How can Paul say there is no such thing as an idol? Obviously, there were many objects carved from wood or graven in metal or stone which pagan peoples bowed down to. So, Paul, what do you mean when you say there is no such thing as an idol? I wonder if he had in mind the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skilful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. These words point up the sheer foolishness of idol worship. It makes no sense. Something that needs special help so that it doesn't fall over is a hopeless substitute for the almighty creator of all things. From that point of view, this handcrafted piece of wood or metal or stone is nothing. But in another place, Paul describes a real associated danger. There's a power that's real which deceives human minds and enslaves them into reverencing such objects which represent dark spiritual forces. In this way, the truth of the one true God is suppressed, as Paul goes on to say, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul was never in any doubt about the existence of opposing spirits of wickedness, powers and principalities in the heavenly realms, as he called them elsewhere. But equally, God's word teaches us that these are created spirit beings who have rebelled against the one who created them, against the one true God, the sole ultimate being. Paul's conclusion is that if our understanding of such matters is clear, we've got freedom to eat food even if it had previously had some involvement in a pagan ritual. However, if our thoughts are muddled in relation to the true status of idols, then our conscience being weakened in that respect would mean it was wrong for us to eat the very same food. Paul then clarifies that it's not the food itself that's the issue, for as he says, food will not commend us to God, we are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if someone sees you, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul has plainly stated that the problem in eating these things, sacrificed to idols, lies only in the eating of them as if they were sacrificed to idols. In other words, if the food just happened to be selected because it was cheap to buy and there was never any intention to place any significance on the previous use to which the food had been put, then Paul says the believer should go ahead and eat it without any troublesome conscience. It was an altogether different matter if this was a believer with a pagan background who still had some kind of lingering respect for the idol, or there still was a disturbing consciousness about the rituals which the food had undergone. The strength of association in the believer's mind was the issue. Consistent with that, elsewhere we have the absolute statement conveying the decision of the Jerusalem Conference in Acts chapter 15 that believers must abstain from food sacrificed to idols. That is, it was forbidden to indulge in any deliberate or meaningful way with such things. In his second Bible letter to Corinth, Paul most likely returns to a topic mentioned here, which is that of eating in an idol's temple. It's possible that he does this when he warns believers against being unequally yoked with unbelievers. You'll find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What exactly did Paul mean by this? Often the verse we've just mentioned has been used to counsel against Christians marrying non-Christians. But where in the context do we find anything about marriage there? It's hard to be conclusive, but some of the vocabulary suggests that Paul may have returned in thought to this theme of eating food with some kind of idolatrous association. The imagery of a temple is used, and it's therefore possible that what Paul was intending to prohibit was believers in the church at Corinth joining with their pagan neighbours in visiting an idol's temple. Why would they want to do that? Well, an idol's temple was the basic kind of restaurant in ancient times. Let's suppose a neighbour wanted to celebrate his daughter's 18th birthday. It would have been natural then for the pagan neighbour to host the event at an idol's temple. Food was plentiful there, and its use honoured the patron gods of that temple whom they probably respected. But outside of these considerations, of a confused and troubled personal conscience, and of an inappropriate public testimony, Paul was clear that there was nothing wrong with the food itself. If you treated it simply as food, all was well, except for the possibility that someone with a weaker conscience than your own was likely to be stumbled if he or she saw you freely eating such food. Paul was very emphatic about giving no cause of stumbling. So in that case, once again, it would be wrong to eat the food. Although this is an issue which many of us may not face, it illustrates the kind of Christian consideration that we should have for one another. As Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 14, we are to accept 
one another's different points of view in such matters without subjecting them to critical review and debate. Once again, now, I remind you of the opportunity to send for the booklet to accompany this series. If you'd like a copy, please write in, making sure to let us have your postal address, and ask for the title, Nothing But Christ Crucified. You can order by email or by post, and here are our contact details, so you can make a note. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooten Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY. I'll repeat that. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooten Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Now, you may be interested to know that you can listen again to many of these broadcasts off-air by audio podcast versions. If you go to www.searchfortruth.podbean.com, you can browse the list of previous talks, which you'll see has been sorted into categories to assist you to find what you're looking for. Now, it's been a privilege to enjoy your company today, God willing, I hope you'll be able to join us for the continuation of this series next week. Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So goodbye and may God richly bless you. Yeah.